Welcome to Feeling Forward. Today, we're talking about the Learning from Failure Initiative that CARE has been running since 2019, where we take a look at all of our evaluations and see what's going wrong. What are things that we can improve and how can we get better at our work by identifying the trends in places where we've made mistakes? This is the third round of that project, and I'm honored to introduce our researchers who helped us look at our evaluations for this year. I'm with Rebecca and Tara. Do you two want to introduce yourselves for the audience today? My name is Rebecca Rossetti. I had the pleasure of being an intern at CARE for um, doing my master's in public health and uh, epidemiology. I'm a former microbiologist at the CDC. I'm Tara Roth. I was also in the same MPH and epidemiology program with Rebecca. And we, I am now currently a public health analyst with a contractor with the CDC. Why is it important for us to be talking about failure at all? Mainly it's important to talk about failure because it helps us learn our weaknesses. It helps us grow and kind of identify what aspects need to be more, have more focus so that future projects can be not perfect, but better. You know, failure is such a scary word and it's really not scary if you can learn from it and grow. Coming from a laboratory scientific background, we face quote failures in our experiments every day. And we use those troubleshoot and create, I mean, we worked in diagnostics, so that's how you create a, a, an effective diagnostics tool. So it would be crazy if we didn't talk about failures in the science world. If you don't talk about them, there are obstacles, setbacks, and challenges that everyone experiences every day. So they're not anything bad. It's how you learn and grow. That's fascinating, the idea that it would be crazy in a scientific world not to talk about failure. And yet in the international development world, it's still really challenging. There's still a lot of barriers to that. What are some of the things from your own background or some factors that make it easier to talk about failure? Especially in a qualitative world, a failure is just data and it's moving forward from that data, making it so that certainly with us diagnostic tests, the test doesn't fail anymore, which is really simple you know, feels more ones and zeros, but coming from this more qualitative side, a failure can be construed, I think, more negatively because it can have those negative adjectives. Instead of a test failing, it's you failed, you did this and this wrong. But no, it's just as with any kind of science, people are going to make mistakes. I think you learn early about failures when you're a laboratory and, you know, you don't perform your first PCR test and get perfect results. You learn that most things you do in the lab are going to fail. We're taught at an early stage in our career to, to embrace them and troubleshoot them and use them to get better. But also sometimes you'll work on something for a year and a half and it'll never work. It's a lot easier because also when you fail, you're looking at a plate that doesn't have color on it. You're not looking at people who yes. might be upset, you might not have helped them as much as you would have liked. And tell us a little bit about the project that you were working on with us. The project that we worked on was the 2022 Learning from Failure Report, which CARE puts out every year. We looked at 72 evaluations from 65 different projects. And this year we did something different and we looked at the final evaluations and the midterm evaluations. We, we were trying to find trends of common failures, challenges that were experienced across sectors and regions and see if they differed by implementation phase of midterm versus final. Talk a little bit about the process. What did you actually do? You looked at 72 evaluations and that's actually in the time window you had, which was evaluations from September of 2020 to December of 2021. 
we thankfully had a code book that has been worked on in previous years that we've slightly modified. That's all put into MaxQDA and you can just go through and as you're reading every project and you find a sentence that mentions a specific failure, like, you know, this was delayed because we didn't get the supplies we needed. You just highlight that and say, oh, missing key inputs or, you know, missing budget. And at the end, you have all the coded segments, like the number of coded segments for each failure. And you can kind of go through and see the percentages of how many evaluations did this failure show up in? Or what percentage of evaluations did this failure show up in? Which one was most common? So what were your key findings? What were the biggest things you learned? Well, we learned that there are a lot more failures at midterm versus final. Stakeholders and context were the main challenges that I found in each one. If you didn't have the stakeholders you needed to get the project done, you didn't understand the context, and you weren't able to create a sustainable program. Let's talk a little more specifically about sustainability. What were a couple of the common gaps that we saw? I think the biggest gap is just how complex these environments are. I mean, you have to consider the political, economical, environmental, cultural, everything. And if one hurricane hits or a drought comes or one political uh, figure does not agree, then you can't. Or a pandemic hits. Yes, or (laughs) or COVID-19, a global pandemic. Some can be sustainable despite all of that, but then sometimes it's just one barrier that prevents us from getting there. And especially with sustainability, it's really important to have a good exit strategy. So knowing that you're handing over everything you've set up to like the governmental body or local communities that can continue running it and you're giving them the tools they need to continue to succeed and improve. The report talks about the difference between a challenge and a failure. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So for failures or anything that you can do something to prevent, like, you know, we couldn't prevent COVID, but we, a project could prevent a delay in implementation. So those were what we called failures. And what was the biggest surprise when you were either doing the overall analysis or even when you were just reading the evaluations to see what the failures were? I was surprised about so many things. I mean, A, the vast amount of information in the evaluations. I learned so much. They were so in-depth. For me, it was really learning how to qualitatively code and how how different it was to anything that I know Rebecca or myself had ever done before, coming from just numbers and then going into kind of things that were a little bit more, I think, subjective sometimes. You really had to make sure you were reading every report thoroughly, and it's just a very different way to analyze data than we were ever used to. And then just kind of comparing how differently we might have coded things, where things where I saw a certain failure you know, she didn't or where she did, I didn't. So it was kind of coming together and realizing that, you know, this is a process that isn't 100% concrete. There, it, we are a little, we're, we're a little bit fallible in this kind of process as well. Uh, and acknowledging that, and but just knowing that this is still data that is important and data that needs to be shared. And as you were reading through the different evaluations and the different pieces of work, was there anything that came up consistently that you thought, really, that seems like it should have worked and it doesn't? Over and over again, they're telling us this doesn't work but it seems like it ought. The participation and the feedback, there were just small errors in the mechanisms or the methods that um, just needed to be tailored a little bit to, and sometimes it was just 
of region, but it was communities within the little region that were different. Some people prefer an iPhone and some prefer a Samsung. Obviously, that's the engaging stakeholders and understanding context. I think a lot of it goes back to just the whole understanding context. Since a lot of this was trying to empower women, it was how often like the embed social structures were a barrier that needed to be considered more. You can't just go in and instantly be like, give women power because it's not how it works. They'll receive pushback. So that's something that has to be considered, I think, a lot more. Both of those point to this idea of the devils in the details. Everyone knows you need a feedback and accountability mechanism. And it's a core standard and we endeavor to roll them out everywhere. But is it an iPhone or an Android or is it a suggestion box at the local hospital? Those are things you're only going to know by speaking to the community. You can't apply a single solution to everywhere. So getting to that space of really deeply understanding the individual context. It's interesting, Tara, that you brought it up, this idea of, of social norms and needing to have broader engagement around gender equality and equality generally, no matter what identity factor you're looking at. What were some of the places that either we need to do more of or places that it seems like we were doing well? So a lot of the gender projects engaging men and boys or tailoring things to, they either saw it, these groups of men and boys saw it as a threat or that. So kind of figuring out how to engage them inclusively, but also give women a safe space to talk. It just varies in so many ways. So just really, really understanding the gender norms and what the men believe as well as the women and the political and local laws. Something that I thought worked well as the VSLAs, making sure women are more recognized in a community by bringing in their economic value more and emphasizing that kind of to the men helped in a lot of situations. And it made it so that their opinions were more heard. They were seen as more of a contribution to the household. It seemed in a lot of those situations after they would kind of survey and get the, you know, the reactions from the community, it was a lot more that like my opinions feel more heard. I am more of a decision maker in my household because I am contributing to it financially. That always seemed to work well. There was one match midterm and final project we did and they noticed that the men and boys were not and happy and they modified the project to reach them and to communicate and it and by the final report they had changed their perception and it was so cool how they used that um that data and the feedback and everything to adaptively manage it is possible just you have to understand and it might just take a couple months or years but um it was really cool that they actually reached them talk about that a little more you said match midterm and final this is the first year we've ever looked at midterm evaluations in addition to final evaluations. What did that show us that we couldn't see before? Oh man, it showed us so many things. There are more coded segments of failures in the midterm. Like the midterm is the point of the implementation process where, okay, this is going right, but these are all the challenges we're having to address by midterm. So we were trying to see if those were addressed by the end. I was able to see a lot just by looking at the lessons learned at the end of the midterm and the end of the final. Budgets were reallocated to address COVID or to deliver education to adolescents to prevent them from falling into habits. It sounds like you're saying both in general between midterms and finals, things got better. Finals had fewer failures and, and seemed to be addressing some of those core issues. It also sounds like you're saying in the cases where we were specifically able to look at a midterm and a final for the same project, they were able to address a lot of the challenges that came up. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, it did get better. And there were less in, in the final by the midterm 
So it'll be interesting for 2023 learning from failure can maybe use some of our coded midterms with their final evaluations for those same projects. If you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? First, I would organize all the reports we were doing on Excel with all the information and really be selective about the evaluations, looking at matched midterm finals and then having an equal amount from each region and sector. One of the things you've mentioned is in this qualitative coding, there's some ambiguity. There's some things that one person might look at and say, that's absolutely a failure. And somebody else might look at and say, well, you know, not really. That's sort of par for the course. So that's exactly how you would expect that to roll out. So one of the ways you dealt with that was by checking in, sending it to someone else and saying, what do you think here? What are some other ways that we have to deal with the ambiguity? As we continue to do it, it got a lot easier. We had an Excel file of the 2020 learning from failures, like coded segments. And I would command F to look for things like integrate if they had trouble with capacity or roles and responsibilities and kind of see what they categorize that as. So that kind of helped me when I was hitting a block. A very valuable thing was to, if you found something and you weren't sure to like read, you know, that part of the evaluation and be like, okay, is this really a failure or was it just a challenge? But that was a big tripping point, I think, was that for us realizing when it was actually a failure or when it was just something that was a challenge. As we said before, those were very different. Like COVID-19 overall was a challenge. You know, they didn't do anything to make COVID-19 happen. They couldn't have predicted it. So most of the things that happened as a result of it, we coded just to have an idea of it, but it's not something we said they failed at. It was just a challenge that happened. And it's interesting because we are so conditioned not to talk about failure at all, that you will often see successes and challenges in a report. People don't use the word failure and then it's not clear when you're reading without a lot of scrutiny to understand how much of this is something that's just a part of the context. It's just your operating environment. You have to learn to work around it versus this is something we could do better or differently. A big part of the genesis of the Learning from Failure Initiative at all was listening to two teams back to back tell exactly the same story of failure in two different countries. But it was exactly the same idea that seemed like it should have worked. It was with exactly the same partner and exactly the same contractor. And it failed spectacularly both times in two different countries, two years apart. And it should have worked. It was such a smart idea. That combination didn't work. But nobody knew that they had both done it until they were randomly talking to each other at an event a few years later. And you just think, oh, could we have saved the second team from replicating exactly the same failure? I think I think that's just a big challenge on the qualitative side and on the quantitative is that we're all about transparency, but that's not exactly the same thing as sharing. In a previous podcast, someone mentioned a failure of the week. You do a five minutes of inspiration every week um, on the care workplace and have a common place to be like, I did this wrong. This, you know, this happened, but um, either just to share it and how you solved it, or like, I need advice, I need help, or like, you know, these are the lessons I learned. Just having like a very non-judgmental, easy, casual environment to talk. Thank you, because you are helping us foster that environment. Part of this process is to say, look, everybody does it. Some of these failures show up in 70% or 80% of what we see. They're very common. And that means we need to think about them differently. We're never going to solve it if we don't look at that. And if we can shift our systems, then we will reduce the chances of that Although we do, it's from a Samuel Beckett quote, we often say, fail again, fail better. We don't aim for a world in which our evaluation shows zero failures. That would mean we were not telling the truth about what had happened, or we weren't trying anything interesting at all. Last question, 
what is one action that you would recommend based on this experience? There's so much we can do with this data. I love how the analysis was like approached in a holistic and collaborative way to like promote engagement. There's just an exponential amount of problems that we need to solve in the world. And it's only going to get more complex. I would love for the data to like the report to spark conversation and the amount of refugees, climate change, COVID, and all the different sectors. I, I would love everything to be shared and more more collaboration and more interest in the data that we found. We could organize it and share it, and um, and then potentially sectors and they can do this on their own. You know, kind of have their own methodology that's simple and. I think that a report like this, almost every company should be doing, regardless of what they do, is like learning from their mistakes and kind of writing about it and saying, admitting it that, you know, these are the things we can do better at. I think another valuable thing to take from this is maybe someday in the future, you can kind of do more real-time addressing of failures that crop up in interventions, taking feedback from the community, from the partners that you're working with, from care individuals out in the field bringing them back so that failures don't have to have as detrimental of an effect as they could. We're trying to help people live quality lives that they deserve. So failures is uncomfortable, get over it. Thanks for listening today. Tune in next time to hear more learning from failure.